everyone, and welcome to the Cognitive History Podcast, where we explain historical events in order to understand their importance. I'm your host, Kevin, and with me is my co-host, Logan. What's up? So, Logan, how have you been over the past two weeks? Anything exciting going on for you? Uh, Just working too much. Uh, I feel that. Um... I haven't really been doing too much other than work and, you know, occasionally going out, seeing the things around me, just typical stuff. I've seen the things around me way too many times. It's just the same old. Well, I mean, you've lived there for 29 years, so. Oh, don't remind me. (laughs) But so anyways, uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about the Ordor Suglan massacre, the slaughter of a French village by the 2nd SS Panzer Division, Das Reich, specifically their 3rd Battalion, Der Führer. Uh, if you haven't fully listened to that episode yet, I highly recommend that you do, as this week's topic will be a continuation of that story. I understand it's a rough inaugural episode, but the information we cover in it is important. Given that... Today we will be discussing the war crimes trials for the surviving members of Das Reich who had played a role in or were present at Ordor Suglan during the massacre. Uh, Logan, do you have any hopes for the outcome of these trials? Well, I doubt justice is going to be an option. Well, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. I don't want to give any spoilers. So, well then, uh, without further ado, let's get into the topic. As mentioned in the last episode, Adolf Diekmann, the man responsible for the massacre, escaped true justice as he had been killed in action, as had several other members of Diekmann's unit in Der Führer. That could have potentially been the end of this story, but instead it was brought to Allied attention by the American pilot who was mentioned in the previous episode. Admittedly, I can't find any more information on this particular officer or what became of his report, but I was able to find one interesting thing. Logan, what would you say if I had told you that this incident was at least mentioned at the Nuremberg trials? I'd definitely be surprised. I figured that'd be more uh, prevalent in the history books if it had. Well, surprisingly, it was listed briefly in the charges brought against the Nazis. Ah, briefly. I can't find precisely who the charges were brought against, but the references and the uh, documents that recorded everything about the trials did mention that Ordor Suglan had occurred, but the charges that were brought against people were mostly, from what I found, destruction of property and murder. So that being, or this being relatively unknown to the public, it was known about by officials at the time. However, the official trials for the massacre would not be at Nuremberg, but would instead be held in the French city of Bordeaux. To set the stage, 
the total number of persons alive that had been present at Orador Suglan on June 10th, 1944. A quick aside here. I do want to apologize because I believe in the first episode, I said that the massacre occurred on June 9th. That's not the case. It occurred on June 10th. So my apologies. I didn't really have wrong, but we will get it right. Yeah. We didn't really have a, a good script. We just had a rough outline for the, first episode which hopefully we can amend this time so yes uh, the total number of people that had been alive uh, or total number of people that were alive at this time that had been present at Ordor Sugalan were 66 of these 66 there were only 21 present at the Bordeaux trials. One might ask why the others weren't present. So that's because of this little thing called the Cold War. Maybe you've heard of it. The trials, rather than happening swiftly after the war, or even a few years after, were instead held seven and a half years after the end of the war and eight and a half years after the massacre itself in January of 1953. During this time, Germany and the capital city of Berlin had been divided into separate zones, with the Soviet Union controlling roughly 50%, and the other 50% being divided into thirds, controlled by France, Great Britain, and the United States. Those living in different zones were not necessarily going to be extradited to France in order to be present for this trial, and several persons had already been sentenced to death for other war crimes. So, thus, 45 of the surviving 66 men were not present at the Bordeaux trials. So... The math doesn't fully add up there, and the one remaining person was one Wilhelm Nob, and he was found to be clinically insane, and thus he was not tried, because if you're not fit to stand trial, you can't stand trial. So that total adds up to 66. So... I would name everyone that was present at the trial now, but in this form of media, a list of names with no pictures can be very confusing. So as important points in the trials come up, the people that they are about will be named. So in what may be a little bit of a surprise, with some foreshadowing into controversies surrounding the trial. Among those who were present, there were eight German nationals and 14 French nationals. Uh, Sorry, quick, quick correction. Seven German nationals and 14 French nationals. Uh, This is an interesting point because why are the French people being tried in a war crimes trial mainly focused with the Nazis? That is interesting. Yes. 
so as I mentioned at the start of last week's episode, Germany had occupied the northern and western areas of France. Particularly of note is the region of Alsace. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Again, apologies. French isn't a forte of mine. But Germany had a policy of Germanization in the region of Alsace. And put simply, many Alsatian men were conscripted into the German army. The seven Germans that were present at the trial had been in British POW camps since 1944 or 1945, and two Alsatians had been in prison since 1945. The other 12 Alsatians had given themselves up voluntarily in 1953 when it was known that trials would be beginning. But why were two French nationals singled out and held in prison? One of them was a man named Georges-René Bousse. Bousse was unique among the Alsatians in the fact that rather than joining the German army in conscription, he volunteered to join the Waffen-SS. So the main charges that were against him were for treason initially until Orador Siglan became a talking point and after which murder was also brought in there. And secondly, the other Alsatian who was held in prison was Paul Graf. And he is actually very unique in everyone who's being tried at the Bordeaux trials because he was the only defendant who actually admitted to having killed anyone in Orador Suglan before the trial was held. So given his confession, it's very understandable as to why he would be held in prison. So the other 12 Alsatians, Ledus, Again, apologies for the probable mispronunciation of French. Um, they they were called Ledus because there were 12 of them. Um, they had been conscripted rather than volunteering. And some of them actually deserted the SS during the Battle of Normandy. Um Interesting to note is that many interviewers told these men that they would be witnesses in the Bordeaux trials rather than defendants, as they had been um, malgré nous, which tr translates to against our will. And that was the term for Alsatian conscripts at the time. That's a little messed up. I mean, so, what they did was messed up, but also them being told they'd be witnesses and not defendants. Oh, ab absolutely. And uh, we'll get into that a bit later. I think everyone kind of held the same sentiment that um, these men had been put into a difficult situation with uh, being tried because they were basically told that they were free to go. And then, you know, they get tried years later. 
So, dirty allies. Don't say that. <laughs> I mean, they fighting real dirty with a little dirty. Um, I ain't gonna yeah. compare them to the Axis. Don't get me wrong, but that's that's fair. That's fair. So the attitude towards Ledus would change in 1947 after French President Vincent Oriol visited Orador Suglan for a commemoration. Uh, during this commemoration, he was urged by the secretary of ANFM, which I am not going to attempt to say in French, but I will give the translation for their name, the National Association of the Families of the Martyrs of Orador Suglan. The acronym makes more sense in French, I promise. I'm just not going to say it because I would butcher it. Oh yeah, that's always the case. <laughs> but he was urged by the secretary of ANFM to pursue the perpetrators and bring them to justice as swiftly as possible. And with this, Oriol announced that the government would introduce new legislation that went against the established norms of the judicial process in which the burden of proof would lie with the accused to show their innocence rather than the burden of proof lying with the prosecution to show guilt. And this one, I, this portion I found particularly interesting because of how it is the exact opposite. It's literally guilty until proven innocent. But this law was known as the Law of Collective Responsibility. It was retroactive and meant that any member of a criminal organization would have to prove they were not present at the crime or were otherwise not involved. And that was passed into law on 15 September 1948. And so this set the stage for all members of their Fuhrer to be tried. And, again, because they were part of a criminal organization, the Nazis, they would have to prove that they were innocent or they hadn't done anything at Ordor Suglan. Historically, that's a very French way of doing justice. Interesting that it's a reverse of what the law was. I So I think the source that I got this information from was more so in line with you know other western countries where the burden of proof is on the prosecution so they had come to the modern world and then they just backtracked seems like it but as a last aside before we get into the trial uh i want to set the stage for the moods of two important groups of people and that is the Alsatians, not specifically the Alsatians that were on trial, but the people of Alsace, they felt that at least the 12, Ledus, and Graf, who became grouped in with them, so the 13, um, 
Alsatians felt that they shouldn't be accountable for their actions as they had been forcibly converted into German citizens in 1940 during the occupation period. So how can you be tried for treason against a crime or against a country that you weren't part of when you committed the crime? That's the same argument that the founding fathers used against Britain. And it's the same argument that the Confederates used during the Civil War. wonder where they got that from. <laughs> I'd say historically it's probably a very common argument. I'm not in support of the Confederacy, just want to point that out. Uh, yeah, uh, have to clarify there. Yeah, deep clarification. I may uh, be a Southerner, but I am not one of that. Right. Um. So, yes, the, the, the 13 had been conscripted into German military service as well. And now they are French citizens, but again, they weren't at the time. But in line of the Founding Fathers, I kind of have to agree with their argument here. It is kind of twisted to try them for treason when they were not capable of making that decision themselves. So I think it's uh, sort of a false pretense getting them into a trial to see if they committed any of the murders at Ordor Suglan, which is a clever pretense, but a false one. Comes off as dirty politics. Agreed. And so conversely to that, the people of Limousine, not the car, the region in France, um, so that's the district around Orador Suglan. Uh, they felt that regardless of one's nationality, a crime was a crime and crime should be punished. And yeah. I have to agree with that viewpoint as well. I agree with both viewpoints. It's difficult. It It is very difficult. And that's very much foreshadowing of controversies that are going to be very prevalent in this trial. I guess I would say the honorable thing would probably be to accept the punishment for your actions, even though you had no control over them. However, mm, that's asking a lot of war criminals. It is even reluctant ones. Yes. So with all of that background information and stage setting, Let's get into the days of the trial. So the first day of the trial was 12 January, 1953. And on that morning, a train from Metz, which is another city in France, arrived in the city of Bordeaux with 11 of the 12 non-incarcerated Alsatians stepping out from the train and they were immediately greeted by the press. And I found this interesting as well because it wasn't lawyers or police as I feel it should have been. And as would be common today, but eventually they were met or they were able to call a member of their defense council 
who was able to set up arrangements in his hotel for them all to stay the night. And the remaining Alsatian would arrive later in the afternoon at the train station, and he wasn't met by anyone. Again, interesting. So we have these people being tried for treason and possibly murder with no security whatsoever. Absolutely, just walking free. And I think part of this was because they had given themselves up, but it still doesn't seem... They'd given themselves up as witnesses, not defendants. Right. And so it's it's a difficult situation for them. So... I guess they would want to prove their innocence, and under that presupposition... Wouldn't be ridiculous to trust them to not try to run. True, but at the same time, coming from a judicial standpoint, having them escorted by either their lawyers or police or both would have made the most sense. It would have made it look less like a mock trial. Agreed. Which kind of gives precedence to your earlier statement about it being a attempt to get them for the murders if they committed them. Yes. And it it's also noted here that they didn't stay the night in a prison or anything like that. No, they were staying the night in a hotel. Mm-hmm. In comfort. Um, I, I couldn't find anything that happened for their accommodations after the first night, but at least 11 of the 12 who were free at the time stayed the night in a hotel. Hmm. So the trial started later that afternoon, obviously after the one late Alsatian arrived and it was held in a very small courtroom in the outskirts of the city. And the location was chosen so that there would be less potential onlookers during this big trial, because basically all of France was talking about the fact that this trial was going to be happening. And all these differing opinions throughout France on whether or not it was just to try them. Exactly. Um, so the presiding judge was, and I'm only going to say his name once because once again, this is the last time I'll apologize. I'm not good with French pronunciations. Um, Marcel Nussi Sansains. He was the heading official for a tribunal of six other officers and the court was set up as a war crimes trial and didn't use the jury system, only having the tribunal to determine verdict and potentially sentencing. The judge, Which makes oh, sense, you know, because oh. just real quick, yeah, that if this was all over the news in France at the time then there'd be no real way of having a fair trial with a jury. Exactly. With everyone knowing about it. And everyone having a very 
strong opinion on whether or not the trial should even exist. Exactly. It's the public would be far too contentious and they would know far too much about it for the trial to actually be fair if it were done by the jury. Mm -hmm. But the judge opened by stating that the trial was primarily one concerned with Nazism, further adding how unfair it was for the Germans to have been held awaiting a trial for so long a time, because again, they had been held from either 1944 or 1945 until now. So that's seven to eight years about. And he also added that it was unfair that the Alsatians had been told that they were free to go in 1947 and they were only dragged back into court later. And again, not as witnesses, but as defendants. So further, the events of the massacre were discussed before the defense counsel were given their opportunity to speak. After that, the defense counsel took the remainder of the day pleading that the Germans and Alsatians should be tried separately. Probably the best option at this point. Perhaps, although we'll get into in just a little bit the... German side of things and the way the law was. Um, So that's the end of day one. Day two, the defense counsel spent the majority of day two discussing that there had been 130,000 Alsatian men that had been drafted into the German forces And they noted one thing that was odd, that 40,000 of these Alsatian men hadn't returned. I'm not sure if it was they were killed in action or just missing in action. But um, with that, they further explained that the Germans attempted to Germanize Alsace and would severely punish avoidance of the military call-up. So. That sets the feelings of the Alsatians in. They felt that they had been trapped into conscription and thus any actions they had committed while they were part of the German army, they shouldn't be tried for because they were basically, they had their hands forced into this situation. So after that, the German council spent their time opposing the pleas for a separate trial. Uh, the Germans felt that as they had all been at Ordor Suglan together, they should all be tried together. Which I hate to say I agree with the Nazi point of view, but in this case about <laughs> this trial, I think that makes the most sense. And the judge determined that the defendants could not be tried separately without violating military code and must be tried together. And so that goes into the law that I brought up earlier, that the law of collective responsibility. So if you're a part of a criminal organization, you have to prove that you were not present or were otherwise not involved. So as they're all part of the same organization, they all have to be tried together. 
and that poor judge. Yeah, he was commended by the later president of France as someone who was put into a very difficult situation and did the best that he could. Definitely. So that was all day two. Day three is mostly spent as an overview of the charges against the men, which was a 40-page document. So lots of charges. Lots of charges against these men. I'm sure the other 44 who weren't present, not including the one who is uh, noted as being clinically insane, I'm sure the other 44 were also mentioned in this because it it will come up later. They are charged with Mm. uh, having committed war crimes. And day four, it started out with the clerk of the court reading out details of the specific offenses with which the men were being charged. So sort of a rehash of the previous day, but not just the charges, but the specific crimes that they were being charged with. So day three would have been something akin to three counts of murder, whereas day four would have started out with, you know, three counts of murder via bayonet, via rifle. By something. explosive. Yes. By something. baby on a crucifix. <laughs> Good callback. Thank okay. you. But yeah, so day four would have been a lot more specific in what charges were being brought against them. And the clerk of the court also read out all of the individual names of the 642 victims, during which the court stood for an entire hour and a half that it took to read off all of the names. Wow. And some of the children hadn't been baptized, so they didn't really have names. And they were listed as, for example, infant aged two, infant aged three months, and infant aged three weeks, and so on and so forth. And so they would eventually be named later on after the trials by the surviving members of their family. But I I thought it was interesting to note that they like unnamed children were also read off specifically in that manner. And so also on day four, the judge made a statement to which he attested to the law of correct collective responsibility that if an individual or sorry, that if individual responsibility could not be proven, then they were all guilty anyway, as it had already been established that they were all members of the guilty third company, Der Fuhrer. So it's a sort of, if you're not guilty, then you're not innocent either situation. Basically, if you were there, you're done. Essentially, yes. You you have to be able to prove that you either were not there or that you did not do anything. 
So the order of the charges is really kind of pointless anyway. In a way, stirring up sympathy. Yes. And again, I'll get to something else in that vein a bit later. So this is where I'm actually going to break from the format that I've sort of established. So far, I've covered each individual day of the trial, but going on in this form would take far too long as the trial continued for just one day short of a full month. So it started on January 12th. It ended on February 11th. So that would take far too long. Um, Instead, I would like to cover the important trial moments before moving on to the verdicts and the aftermath of the trial. So on the eighth day of the trial, uh, George René Boos, as previously mentioned, um, being the sole member of, among the Alsatians who had volunteered for service in the Waffen-SS. So he was accused of being a, quote, killer of women and children, unquote, which Booz heartily denied. Um, further digging into his character, Booz was stated by his co-defendants to be, quote, more German than the Germans. And... By that, they meant... So, the Alsatians were treated very poorly by the Germans that they were serving with, as is want to do with conscripted service members, vice service members from the home country who had volunteered their service. Well, I mean, they're not German, so... That as well. Even with the Germanization, they're still throwaways right and i mean that also goes into further back um social darwinism germans and english were viewed as being higher on the social order of things than other races so the germans had this sense of self-importance because we're german you're not Issues we still deal with today. Yes. But, so, in in saying that Boos was more German than the Germans, they were mainly digging at the fact that he would treat his fellow Alsatians with more disregard than the Germans would. So, say someone did something they weren't necessarily supposed to, he would punish them more severely than the Germans had. And he was the one that volunteered. Yes. So, not really a good look for him. Very much a save yourself, screw everybody else. Oh, essentially, yes. Um, so then... In a very odd display, with the court bringing in evidence, they brought in a large rusty baking container in which they had found the burnt body of a baby. And Boos was asked if he knew anything of the matter, as he uh, he had allegedly been part of the squad that was near the bakery where the container was discovered. Boos said nothing to this, stood for 
a few minutes saying nothing when he was repeatedly questioned about it. And that doesn't exactly look very good for someone who's accused of a crime to stand there saying nothing. Being accused of a crime like that, not much you could do would look good. True. I mean, you could deny it, but I think the other men involved would have something to say to disregard his testimony. You have other witnesses. You have actual evidence present. Kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, right? Exactly. Uh, so that's that's the important part of the eighth day. On the tenth day of the trial, uh, there was testimony from Jean Canu, a French resistance fighter who was actually the one who abducted Helmut Kampf, who you might remember from the previous episode. They were or the De Fiora was trying to rescue Helmut Kampf by taking hostages from Orador Suglan that didn't happen because they massacred everyone. It's all his fault. Oh, don't don't put that on the resistance fighter. No, no, no. He did an impressive feat. It's not his fault they can't read French. Um, I actually also did find out that um, Helmut Kampf was actually killed on the same day that the massacre happened. So Poetic they wouldn't, justice. they wouldn't have gotten Helmut Kampf anyway. Well, they got what was left of him. Eventually, maybe. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Kanu stated, I'm convinced that the Gestapo confused Ordor Sugulan with Ordor Suver a well-known center of resistance 20 miles away. Ordor Suglan was one of the most passive villages in France. There was no resistance activity at Ordor Suglan, and there is no other reason why the Germans should have decided to wipe out the village. So that, again, goes into the fact that they went to this village in confusion because as noted from a resistance fighter, there wasn't any resistance activity in Orador Suglan. And at the time of his statement, there would be no reason to lie about it, given that the war is over. Yes. So in the last days of the trial, I know I'm skipping ahead a lot there. There's, there's a lot when you actually get into the trial. I mean, a trial lasting almost a month is going to have a lot of content to it. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I'd say check it out at your local library, but they probably don't have any books. Well, we can give our source for this. Sources are good. Yes. Um, Just so you don't so, think we're pulling all this out of our asses. So the source for this portion, at least, is www orador.info and the website admittedly is a little hard to navigate but I do recommend everyone visit that if you want more information into the trial and everything going on with this event in history 
it's actually we'll be sure to uh, post this link as well when we post the video yes. link on our Facebook. Uh, but it's it's all very interesting material. Not video podcast. <laughs> it's nine thirty. I have to wake up at five in the morning. Sorry about no. that. <laughs> oh, it it's like that technical difficulties earlier and whatnot. Yeah, halfway across the world doesn't help. Yeah, no. But uh, getting back to things, in the last days of the trial, the intensity of emotions had reached very high points. Um, one of the prosecuting officers, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Gratien Gardon, demanded the death penalty for booze and a mixture of hard labor or solitary confinement for the rest of the Alsatians. It doesn't say what he thought of the Germans. I know there was one other, or there was one German that the death penalty had been called for, and that was Karl Lentz. And he's an interesting case. He denied having committed any wrongdoing, but it's thought that the reason he was looked at so apprehensively was because of the fact that of all the people present on the trial, he was the most senior member. So he had more authority. So when you think about things, he probably actually had done something. But moving on, on the conclusive date of the trial, the 11th of February, 1953, the defendants were permitted to give their final statements. And of the Alsatians, only Boos spoke, stating, I regret sincerely having been in this sad affair without having wished it. Which, that struck me as being a very odd statement, though without having wished it part. Because mm. he could have just left it as, I regret sincerely having been in this sad affair. I think the without having wished it portion was to s- reduce his admission of guilt to anything. Could be, or it could could be an attempt at repentance. Either one, really. Um, Can't know his heart. That is true. Uh, So the Germans were also allowed to make individual statements. Um, Most of them made statements, but the only one I have note of is the statement of Karl Lentz and that is quote as a German I regret sincerely the events of Orador I took no part with full confidence I leave my fate in the hands of this high tribunal end quote yeah so he he is full stop into his I didn't do anything but 
I mean, there wasn't much evidence against him that he had done anything. So could be telling the truth. Could not. Yes. Uh, the only evidence that there was against him was the fact that he was president at Orador Siglan, but it's also of note that he never attempted to deny that. Mm. So with that, the verdicts were announced at 2.10 a.m. on Friday the 13th, February 1953. Not a good day. No. Um, so after the, so that was, the verdicts had been decided after the tribunal had deliberated for 32 hours. Impressive number. Um, Very much so. The, the defendants were asleep in their cells at the time, as one is wont to do at 2.10 in the morning. And I thought I had to wake up early. Right? <laughs> but they were woken up to hear what their fates were. And before the sentences were read out, the great bell of Bordeaux was rung in memory of the dead of Ordor Suglan. And the results are largely unsurprising. Um, it's one really odd note. And I mean, I've said really odd, but this is like really odd. Capital mm. R, capital O. Um, <laughs> the Germans that were sentenced were given an additional sentencing that they were barred from living in France for 20 years, which is just like, why would they want to when it should have been noted that the entire country of France would have known who they were and would have hated them. So yeah, that, that one struck me as being like particularly odd. Everyone here hates you and you would probably die if you came. So now you're barred from coming for 20 years, even though you're not gonna. And then also only 20 years. Okay. Yeah, 20. Uh, why 20? Why not I, a lifetime? You're already doing this. Why not a lifetime ban? Yeah, it's... You are hereby exiled for life. This trial has a lot of odd points, but... You're straight I up think... Nazis, not Napoleon. We can't get rid of you forever. I, I think this one, like this point, is probably like the peak of the oddness. <laughs> but, so, oh. getting on to the sentences. First come the Germans. Um, Karl Lenz was sentenced to death. Uh, Wilhelm Blaschke. 12 years hard labor. Wilhelm Bame, 10 years hard labor. Fritz Fjöfer, 10 years hard labor. Hermann Frenzel, 10 years jail. Herbert Dobb, 12 years hard labor. Irvin Dagenhart was acquitted 
as he was able to prove that he was not in Orador Suglan during the killings. Lucky guy. Wilhelm Nob, not present in court as he had been found clinically insane prior to the trial beginning and so was not actually tried at all. And I, I've, I just noticed lots of Wilhelms. Mm-hmm. But moving on to the Alsatians. They, they should have named it Das Wilhelm instead of Das Führer. Uh, might as well. I mean, if if trends continued, we would have had probably about 50% of the actual Der Führer unit as Wilhelm. <laughs> but so the French nationals, um, first and foremost, George René Bus was sentenced to death. Paul Graff, the other Alsatian who was uh, in jail at the time that they were awaiting trial. Eight years jail, which is a really low sentencing for someone who admitted to having killed someone. Yes, these are French prisons, and if they've gone back to the historical traditions of guilty until proven innocent, it's likely that, you know, death might be safer than jail. Maybe. Uh, Next is Albert Dahl, eight years hard labor. Jean-Pierre Alsacer, six years jail. Louis Hollinger, six years jail. Albert Ox, five years hard labor. Joseph Bush, eight years hard labor. Antoine Lohner, seven years hard labor. Fernand Giedinger, eight years hard labor. Alfred Spath, five years hard labor. Louis Pressel, six years hard labor. Henri Weber, six years jail. Jean Nice, five years hard labor. And last but not least, I can actually say that because of his sentencing, Camille Greinenberger, eight years hard labor. Interesting amount of German-sounding names on the French side. And so I think that is actually attributed to either they had been given German last names during the Germanization of Alsace, or... It's just because of the proximity of Alsace to Germany, as Alsace mm. is very close to the German border. Interesting. So, note that the Germans all have longer sentences than the Alsatians. Oh, for sure. The, the only people who are equal in this are Lenz and Boos, who both were given the death penalty. And were they actually executed after this? So let's get to that. Um, so in the aftermath of the trial, Alsace and Limousine, um, they were both filled with outrage. Alsace felt that the punishments were too harsh, 
and Limousine felt that they were not harsh enough. There's no winning here. It's expected, given the feelings that they had before the trial. Mm Mm-hmm. So protests and posters sprang up all across Alsace stating, quote, all Alsace declares solidarity with her 13 sons, end quote, and 13 because they did not count Boos because they definitely viewed him as a traitor. So because of these protests, the French National Assembly passed a bill on 19 February 1953 Note how close it is to the end of the trial. It's it's literally a week after mm-hmm. the sentences are announced. Not taking but, their time at all. No, not at all. But they passed a bill on the 19th of February, 1953, granting amnesty for the 13 Alsatians. Again, Boos is not included as he had volunteered to join the SS. And this halted the protests and saw the release of the Alsatians three days later. Mm. The people of Limousine were of course, absolutely devastated by this. And the ANFM stated quote, our dead are being held in scorn and jeered at Orador has been sacrificed a second time. Ordor, the symbol of barbarity, will henceforth be also the symbol of the unpunished crime. And as much as I want to feel for the Alsatians who had been conscripted into service, I definitely feel a lot more for, you know, the surviving members of the families of the people of Ordor Suglan. Because they, crimes had been committed against their family members. So, and again, crime being crime should be punished. So, soon after the Alsatians were released, the German men sentenced to hard labor or jail would also be released as they had served their time while waiting for the trial to begin. Which is a legitimate thing. However, I, if, if they were found guilty of murder, then what, 12 years? That's aren't modern prison sentences usually longer than that for the same crime. Yes. No. Modern prison sentences for murder are generally around seven years, I believe. Uh, but they don't usually give them time served. Yeah, no. Although modern court trials are usually held less than eight and a half years after the crime is committed. Yeah. Usually. Usually within a year or so. Except for within the last year or so, given the state of the world. Yes. Thank you, Corona, for everything you've given us. It's been wonderful. Oh, yes. Uh, That is actually not the last note, because as if this couldn't get more upsetting, we have to get more upsetting. Lastly, 
Lentz and Boos, the two men who were condemned to death, were eventually pardoned, making all 21... Yeah, no, it it is. All 21 people who were mm. put on trial were free men by 1958. Oh, I agree. I agree. I'm. It's not like neo Nazis. Not like modern Nazi wannabes. No, no. These actual Nazis. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's it's a very upsetting mm. end to a war crimes trial, which usually has some bit of upset to it, but not the whole thing. No, oh, this was and... all such a waste of time. <laughs> it's it's so bad and so everyone who I take back present, what I said about that poor judge I do I take it back you well, failed, hey, sir. It, it, it wasn't his fault that they had all been freed we can blame that on the French government <laughs> again you, you can exile Napoleon but even these guys get 20 years ooh it's um. If I bet it, they didn't even hold them to that. I I couldn't find anything about that. They all of the Germans probably left France and had no desire of coming back. Oh, for sure. Like they weren't coming back anyway. But even if they had, I bet they would have come into France. They said, "You ain't supposed to be back here for another fifteen years," and they would have said, "Okay, welcome to France." So another interesting point that I didn't mention when I was reading off all of the sentences was the fact that everyone who wasn't present at the war crimes trials in Bordeaux was sentenced to death. None of it got carried out because, you know. (laughs) No, we can't kill Nazis. We've done too much of that, right? Well, Stalin wasn't going to uh, extradite anyone nor... Why would he care about the sentencing given from a different government? I mean, true, but the Russians did help take Berlin at the end. Right, but it was specifically because a lot of the members of their Fuhrer were in East Germany and or East Berlin that they weren't extradited to France. And Russia never hold them accountable for anything? Right. At least not from what I could find. They must have been the happiest people in the world that the Soviet Union existed. Probably. I, I mean, they for got one... the good end of the stick. I think they're the only people in the entirety of Germany that got the good end of the stick. From the Soviet Union. Probably. Also, hey, for once a story that involved uh, Nazis getting away with war crimes doesn't involve Argentina, right? Oh, that's true, too. As far as we know. As far as we know. (laughs) But 
anyway, we do we do still have forty thousand missing people. We don't know. <laughs> we will Probably never, never know. Will. No. But at any rate, that's uh, that's the war crimes trials of Bordeaux for the Orador Suglan massacre. I do apologize that it didn't turn out how everyone wanted it to turn out. But that's history for you. If you think that's bad, I'm sure we'll cover a subject where it turns out much worse. Are you setting goals for me now? I'm setting goals for myself. All right. Remember, I'm the so-called expert in European and Western history. So given European history, it, it will get worse. My goal is to find something worse in China now. China definitely. Oh no, China definitely has the capacity for something worse than this. God, now we just sound sadistic. Now we do. We do. Um, Note: We're not. We're not sadists. We have a sick sense of humor, but we are not sadists. And history just happens to have a lot of dark moments in it. And perhaps this ending is on a little bit brighter of a note than the many minutes I spent in the last episode talking about a crucified baby. Yeah, that was um, that was probably one of the uh, heavier portions or heavier endings of a podcast I've listened to. It's eh, a good way to start. All right, so tell me about the logistics of this. <laughs> <laughs> How did they get it to the crucifix? <laughs> Where did oh, they get uh, the crucifix? Which crucifix was it? Uh, I, I'm going to want to cut this, but I'm not going to. No, it can't be cut. Uh, uh, this is no. this is the ending that the people want. Uh, again, six senses of humor sometimes. Come back but, for more. Uh, at any rate... We now have a Facebook page. Yay. That How's that for a segue? Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, we have a Facebook page. For yeah, some that's reason... I, uh, that's the one I mentioned earlier when I was talking about where we're going to put the reference yes. website that we previously mentioned. If Facebook will let me access the page for whatever reason I'm encountering uh, technical difficulties at the moment. Probably hacking... Are we blaming the Russians again? No, I don't blame the Russians. I blame the federal government of the United States. Okay. Hi, NSA but, agent. But, um, yeah, once I get my technical difficulties figured out, I will post the link to our source on that page, as well as the Spotify link to the episode. Although, that's kind of a useless thing to mention now that I think about it. (laughs) It doesn't matter where you find us. There's going to be a circle somewhere. And also, we have an email account for the podcast. So, if you want to get into contact with us, give us uh, feedback in a one-on-one style. Or if you just got something you want us to cover. I mean, I was actually about to get to that. Yeah, if, if you had, on. 
anything you want us to cover. You, you gotta can, let me talk every now and then. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can contact us via the action button on our Facebook page or just composing an email like a old school human. Um, we will not be the, accepting snail mail. We do not have a P.O. box and don't intend to set one up. Oh, that absolutely. is way too much logistics for two continents. Sorry. But you can contact us at cognitive history podcast at gmail.com. So super simple. But at any rate, I think that is where we will end things. Um, unless Logan, without giving anything away, do you want to give a hint as to what the next episode will be? I think we should leave it a mystery. All right. I I like that too. I I do have to say, um, I'm excited for the next two topics we have uh, planned out. Oh, absolutely. They will not be massacre related. I don't know if either of them have anything about a crucified baby in them. Sorry if that's what you're coming in for. This is probably going to be the end of that. I hope. Um, spoiler alert. One of them does have crucified people. Not not necessarily babies, but people. Crucified people, I can... That's fine. That's fine. It, it's the non-baptized babies that we should put an end to. Yeah, that one's a bit heavier. Yeah. But so at any rate, thank you all for joining us for the over an hour that we've been at this. And we look forward to seeing you again in the next two weeks. Have a good one, everyone. See ya.